was a sober time around the Lord's Supper, wasn't it? Uh, take your Bibles, if you have them, turn to John chapter 17. The reality of the Lord's Supper reminds us that we are not perfect, that we need a Savior. And boy, I, uh, something just hit me as I was sitting with you this week. I realized that I said something to a dear friend that I would meet them at a certain point this week, and it just hit me that I think I completely failed to follow up with my promise to them this week. Uh, as we turn to John chapter 17, we realize that we may not, we, we realize we will not ever be perfect in this side of heaven. We confess to each other that. We confess the need that we need someone other than us. And in John chapter 17, we have what often is titled the high priestly prayer. The reality that Jesus is the perfect priest. We need his prayer. This is the longest prayer. We need his righteousness. And... He is praying these things not in a vacuum, and often we think of the high priestly prayer as maybe such. It could certainly stand alone as a, as a mini-series. But he's praying this prayer on the heels of his upper room discourse where we've just come from. He's praying this prayer on the heels of telling his disciples, do not let what? Your hearts be troubled. He's praying this prayer on the emotions that he is going to go away and yet they will remain. He's also praying this prayer with full view of the shadow of the cross before him. And it is this prayer this morning that we so desperately need. It is this prayer that so is recorded for our instruction and our learning. And we need this prayer. We need to know the heart of Jesus. We need to understand what it looks like when hearts are troubled, what the proper response is in troubled lives. It's not to turn inward to ourselves to be full of despair, but it's to turn upward, placing our care on the one who knows us best. Secondly, we have to understand that this prayer, the timing of this prayer, as John 17, verse 1 says, when he says, Jesus spoke these things and lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. That hour has been alluded to all along the way in the Gospel of John, hasn't it? Do you remember that phrase? The hour is coming. The hour is coming. And there's something that turns at the face of it, when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, when he now is indicating that the hour has come. All the way now through the full view of the upper room discourse, when he says, I go to prepare a place, I'm going away. And then he says here again, marking the reality that the hour has come. It's a period of time, a certain period of time. It's marked by a certain event. It's an event that is troubling 
to Jesus, let alone to the disciples. But it's an event all within the Father's care. It's the event of the cross. The hour has come. And so we can also say that the proper response to trouble is not to be flooded with anxiety, but to feel uh, confident in the anticipation of what God promised to do. Not to be overwhelmed or flooded with anxiety, but to be confident in the anticipation. So Jesus, Jesus prays this prayer in the shadow of the cross, as I've mentioned. He teaches us to recognize, and I, this is real, really where I want us to understand this morning by way of introduction, that Jesus' prayer helps us to understand that we must submit to the purposes of God, even among the darkest shadows of life. For Jesus, that is now. The hour has come, and the shadow of the cross looms onto him. The hour has come for his disciples where they are fearful and they are troubled. But prayer points us to the purposes of God, or at least that's one of the purposes of prayer, that we should be looking for and submitting to the purposes of God. And uh, it reminds us that there's a great unity. This prayer reminds us that there's a great unity with the Father and the Son. In verse 1, as we continue to read, as Jesus says, he, the Father, the hour has come. And he says, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Jesus prays for himself here in the first five verses, and that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. He prays for himself, but in that self-prayer, they are so unified together, the Father and the Son, what's the result? Father, glorify the Son. What's the purpose? So that He may glorify you. And so, really on the face of it, as majestic and amazing as this prayer is, it can be boiled down to the simple reality that you and I ought to be looking at the Father's purposes. We ought to be submitted to the Father's purposes in our lives. And that a prayer life really articulates in the, the, the vast reality that God's purposes will prevail. And it really bends our hearts to those purposes. And that's what we want to learn from this morning. And so we're going to see that in really four words in these first five verses. Four words. They're all going to begin with R to help you this morning. Okay? So the first one is Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection. As we look to the purpose of what prayer is, the purposes of God, we first see the resurrection. Christ's resurrection from the dead in verse 2. Even as you gave him, Jesus is speaking, he says, even as you gave him, or we could say me, the, the Son, authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. So we see the, the reality of the resurrection here, and I want to understand that reality. I'll explain that reality to you. We see that in the word, you gave him authority over all flesh. So what kind of authority are we talking about? Well, it's going to be helpful to understand that authority through 
what's qualifying that. The authority over all what? Over all flesh. Now, you may have a more modern translation, like the NIV, that says authority over all people. And that certainly would be a fine rendering of the word flesh. Uh, but it is the word sarx in the, in the Greek, and it is literally the word flesh, not the idiomatic expression people or humanity. And why is that important? Well, the, the NASB, what, what I'm reading from this morning, the ESV also renders it flesh. It's helpful because I think it helps us understand the kind of authority that is in view. As Jesus says, you have given the Son all authority. It's not just authority of, over people, though it certainly is. Jesus has that authority, doesn't he? We would say, certainly, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords. But it's not in full view of, of, of authority in relationship to the roles of people. In other words, it's not a kingly authority. Jesus has that authority, but that authority is not in view. It's not the supervisor authority or authority that one would have over people. If you're a police officer and you go and, and you're sitting on the side of the road and you wait for someone to break the law by going too fast. I thought that was me yesterday. I was following someone and on 271, and you know there are hawks on 271, and they should be, right? And and uh, so we were going fine, and then this 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 police officer, he just comes with his lights off, and he's just going like. I don't know. He must have been going like 200 miles per hour. It was crazy. It was crazy. I could smell the exhaust afterwards of like the car just burning pure fuel, right? And he actually, we were on the express lanes and he was trying to get over uh, to catch someone that was actually not on the express lanes that thought that they could get past the authority because they weren't in the same section as the police officer was. Well, he got him. He got him pretty good. <laughs> in fact, I may have sped up a little bit just to see if he got him. I, I didn't mean to do that. I just looked down, and I'm like, oh, wow, I'm going to get pulled over now, so I better not. But he got him. And uh, my flesh in, in the, in the hip hypocritical mode that it was was like, yes. But that's not the kind of authority that we're talking about here. It's not the authority of, over people. It's not the authority of popularity, right? You know, the Kansas, Kansas City Chiefs, right? They, Kansas City Chiefs, they, they won the Super Bowl, and, and they get thrown a parade, Right? You have an achievement, typically. No one shuts down all of downtown so that, you, that people can have a parade for you. Right? That's the authority of popularity, doing something amazing like winning the Super Bowl. Um, it's not the authority of possessions or money. Jesus, the scripture says that Jesus owns the cattle on the thousand hills. God does. But that's not the authority that we're talking about. The scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus is Lord. But that's not the popularity that we're talking about. We're not talking about Jesus as king here. We're actually talking about the authority over all flesh. And what's the reality of that? What's the greatest problem of this? People have even frozen themselves rumored that Walt Disney did that, right? So that whatever ails this, once it's, once it's discovered, the cure, right, he'll come out of a frozen pause in his life. The reality is that this flesh will fail, right? Unless we see Jesus, unless he comes, until he comes back, this flesh will fail. This body will die. But who has authority over the flesh? Over 
the body. Over the, 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 the failures of this stuff. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. The resurrection is in full, full view. It was in full view in the upper room discourse at the beginning in John chapter 14, verse 19. Look with me just at John chapter 16, verse 16. Just a page back for you probably. Jesus reminds them that a little while you will no longer see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And then he goes on to kind of go through that. What is he, what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about the resurrection. And so now Jesus is saying, Father, you've given me authority over all flesh. And, uh, and that is the resurrection. That is also very clear when Jesus says, You have given me authority over all flesh, to, so that to all whom you have given him, verse 2, what? He may give, what? Eternal life. He may give eternal life. Christ's resurrection delivers the hope of life. It demonstrates the power of God, that he has authority, he has power over all flesh, and it also delivers the hope of life. No one has that kind of authority but Jesus. And while Christianity is a very inclusive religion, what do you mean by that, Pastor Steve? Well, think about it. It's not a matter of race, like the Jews were. It's not a matter of sex. It's not a matter of fame. It's not a matter of family belonging. It's not a matter of your history. You can be the vilest of criminal and hang next to Jesus, or you can be the noblest of king. But Christ and his authority and his life is what? Is for you. All are welcome into God's family through the Lord Jesus Christ. But it is only Christ's resurrection that delivers hope. So as inclusive as Christianity is, it is also very exclusive. And it's not exclusive by the notions of man, as, as someone put it once, but it's exclusive by the very nature of who God is. Look at verse 3. This is eternal life. Jesus is defining what eternal life is. That they may know you, the only true God. Christianity is exclusive because of who God is, the very nature of who God is. Not because, not because we determine it as Christians. And so I want to address a specific application to the fact that God gave Jesus over authority over all flesh. He gave authority to eternal life to all, that our text says, to all whom have, have been given him. And you may be sitting here this morning and you may doubt. You may have doubters of your eternal life. But the Bible says, don't doubt Jesus. Jesus has the authority. In just a few days, Jesus will raise from the dead, dead demonstrating that authority, that power over the, the failure of the flesh. Don't think that there's something more that you need to do. No, the key to salvation is I can do nothing, isn't it? The key to salvation is I have no part. If it were up to even a bit of me, I would split hell wide open, wouldn't I? It's not about going to church. It's not about good works. It's not about the kind of prayer that you prayed or, or having to pray a prayer time and time and time again. Oh, my friends, Salvation is in 
Jesus because it's the authority that he has and he alone to give eternal life. And so what does it mean to have life that is submitted to this authority? Right, as we look at this passage and as we understand the prayer and the purpose, we see that Jesus has authority because he is the one, he is the resurrection and the life. So what does it mean to trust in this authority, to trust in this salvation, to submit to it? Friends, you have to submit to the salvation of Jesus. We often talk about it in terms of a free gift, and that's true. You have to accept it. But part of accepting it is submitting to it the way Jesus says you ought to, you must. And so we find the next word, relationship. Relationship. Christ's relationship with us is seen in verse 3, where we see this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, let's just be real clear. There's very few times in Scripture where we have a formula like this. This is, what? Eternal life. Don't let that skate by this morning. Jesus is being super clear. Do you want to know what eternal life is? Jesus says, this is eternal life. We could call it the definition. And there's really no mincing words. It's simple. It's clear. And yet it's very profound. And so we see the definition of what it is to have a relationship. But we also see the description of that relationship. And Jesus says it this way. This is eternal life that you may what? You may know. You may know. Know you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. This word know is a rather common Greek word in the scriptures. It's gnosko, for those of you who are Greek geeks. But it has not been common in the book of John. At least not in this sense. In the sense of salvation. Right? There's a lot of ways that we describe salvation, right? Especially to children, right? We sometimes say, accept Jesus into your what? Into your heart. We say words like, you must believe in him, or you must acknowledge him as Savior, or we say, trust in him. All those are fine ways to describe what it means to submit to salvation in, the, in Jesus Christ. Right? But there's different ways to say it. And throughout the Gospel of John, John has really not used this word no in that sense. In fact, he's kind of shied away from it to some degree because the Jewish religion has all about knowing about God. But yet they completely missed who God was. And furthermore, we know that's true because they missed who? <laughs> they missed the Son of God who was given to them straight in their faces. And they rejected him. And so look at verse 8 with me. We have some of the words that John has been using for a relationship with Jesus Christ in this gospel. He says, for the words, Jesus has always had emphasis on his words in the gospel of John. My words are life. 
You have to essentially eat my words. You have to partake of me. I am the manifestation of the word of God. For the words which you have gave me, I have given to them. And they received them. He's talking about his disciples here. So he's talking about believers. And they received them and truly understood. That's the word, Greek word ginosko there. That's the Greek word for know. The same word that we have in verse number 3. So words that they may truly understand that I came forth from you. And here is another word that John typically uses for faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what? And that they believe that you have sent me. So we really have all three words in this prayer. And it's apparent that Jesus is trying to get us to understand the description of what it means to have eternal life, a relationship with him. And this relationship, as I mentioned, is, uh, is based on him, not based on us. It's not based on self-performance. It's not based on perfection. It's not based on uh, even, even some other things. I was, I was reading uh, some Facebook posts this past week, and my heart went out to someone who is really just struggling with uh, being a Christian and, and just having hard things in their life. And as, as you can imagine, there were people that were just, they were, they were trying to encourage this individual. Right? Oh, I've been there. Oh, here's some word from the scripture. Oh, here's a resource to read that Jesus is the Savior, even if it doesn't feel like it all the time. And that's exactly the, the kind of trauma, the drama that's here in this text, right? The disciples are going to feel rattled. They're going to have feelings that indicate other than the fact that they have been saved and that they know Jesus. But Jesus says, no. It's not in religion. It's not based on self-performance or it's not based on perfection. But it's also not based on, that is, salvation is not based on an absence of trials or on an absence of doubts in your life or an absence of sin. No, salvation, knowing God, a relationship with Jesus is based on this. Are you ready? He says, that you may know, that they may know you, the only true God. My friends, Jesus didn't say that he would wipe away every single tear until we see him. One day he will wipe away every single tear when we see him. But until then, we have to trust in what Jesus says. We have to trust in his authority. And we have to trust that the resurrection and a relationship with Jesus is enough until we see him face to face. And so he says of God, the only God. There are no others. You know, Isaiah says what? None like you. So what does that mean for those of us who have a relationship with God? My friends, there is nowhere else to go. He's the only God. You can't run anywhere else. Life may not feel good. Life indeed hurts. Trials come. That's not a failure of God. 
Don't doubt the authority that God has. Don't doubt his goodness or who he is. But a measure of faith and a measure of a relationship with Jesus is to say there's nowhere else to go. One of his disciples asked Jesus that very same question, didn't he? Where else is there to go, Jesus? He's the only God. There's nowhere else to go. But he also is the true God, my friends. And we have to hook that into our relationship understanding, too. That though everything seems so dark and the waves are crashing in, this is the light of the world, and this allows us to float no matter the trouble. The Word of God. We understand the true God from this very book. We understand who he is through a relationship that we have with him through the ministry of the Spirit of God as we've preached that illumines and, under, and, and says yes and amen to these pages and to the truths here no matter what I feel in the moment. And so he is the, the only true God and a re- relationship with him is not based on feeling but it is based in truth. And we see another reality of the relationship, the description of the definition of eternal life, and that is to know not only God, we understand in unity, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And, and in comes the wealth of gospel proclamation. When God says, uh, uh, when, when, we're, when, when Jesus says, know me whom my Father has sent, well, why did God send Jesus anyway? What does that start with? It starts with God's love, right? But God demonstrated his love to us. Well, what does love demonstrated to us actually communicate? Let's take the truth. What does it communicate? That while you were yet what? Sinners! Christ died for us. We needed that payment. We needed that perfect life. So we have a, the wealth of gospel in the sending of God's Son to demonstrate that God so loved us that he gave us eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the third word, as we continue to move on in Jesus' prayer about himself for the glory of God, we have resurrection, we have relationship. And third, we have Christ's redemption. We see that in verse 4, I have glorified you on the earth having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. How has Christ glorified God on the earth? That's, that's a pretty pregnant statement, isn't it? Jesus says, I have glorified you on the earth. Well, if you could just think categorically for a second, we could understand the very beginning of the book of John when uh, Jesus the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his what? His glory. Right? So the incarnation is, his appearing is glorifying to God. His works were glorifying to God. The very first miracle, the very first sign in the Gospel of John is Jesus turning wa- uh, wine into, did I have that word? Turning water into wine. There we go. And what, is, what does John say there? This is the first sign that Jesus did. 
And what was the purpose? That we would be, that we would see his glory. That Jesus would be able to manifest his glory, John tells us. And that his disciples would believe in him. Kind of goes to what Pastor Mark said about the reality in the opening of our, of our service. That, that these things are written so that you would believe. And believing you would have life in his name. So Jesus has all these, these works that manifest his glory. He has words. His, his, his food is to do the will of him who sent him. My teaching is not mine, but the one who sent me. I came out of my own accord, but he sent me. I mean, Jesus' works, Jesus' words, Jesus' appearing, Jesus' very life. He's a perfect lamb of God who takes away sins is a manifestation of the glory of God to you and to me. Even Jesus' opposition Think about that. The religious Pharisees, what were they concerned about? Right? They were concerned with the externals of sin. Externals of sin everywhere. Here, 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 here. And what, what did that lead to? <laughs> that led to oppression and hypocrisy. And Jesus was not concerned about the externals, was he? Oh, my friends, he could look right past the externals. He was concerned about the soul, the individual which always leads to love, doesn't it? And so maybe we're prone to directly dismiss these things, these categories of how Jesus demonstrates the glory of God on earth. They're not applicable to our lives, we may say. After all, who among us can heal? Who can sincerely stand up and say that my words, the content that I generate, is the very word of God? No one here would do that. No one can do that. Only Jesus can. That's why we need a Redeemer. My friends, that's the very reality. When, when Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, that leaves all of us in the wake as hopeless and helpless. Because we can't be like Jesus. We can't do what Jesus did. Jesus, in one sense, is that signpost saying, you aren't good enough. And aren't we glad that we have a compassionate, loving, truthful signpost to tell us that we need Jesus. We need a Redeemer. A Redeemer that has perfectly paid our sin debt. And so Jesus has not only glorified the Father on earth, but he's also accomplished the work which God gave him to do. So what are we talking about? Right? This is a little confusing here a little bit. Right? Think about, think about this with me. Think about this with the text. I have glorified you on earth. Right? So we're really talking about all that Jesus has done to glorify God. But it's actually something a little bit more than that. Jesus actually goes a little bit further here and he says, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. What's that work? We already said that Jesus is praying in light of the shadow of the cross. That's the work that Jesus is pointing to. But he's actually stating it as if what? It's already happened. In fact, accomplishes, it is finished. That's what Jesus is essentially saying here as he's praying to God. How can that be? Well, you know what, folks? This is entirely keeping with the mind of God. 
Let me give you one example that you've never probably had a problem thinking about before in this context. Isaiah 53, think about the terminology there. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Spoken as if it has already happened, yet centuries before Jesus. And you know what? There's one that goes even further back than Isaiah. Peter says that with the precious blood of the Lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundations of the world. So in the mind of God, this has already happened. God is not limited by time like we are. We're in time, and Jesus is in time in his body. But the reality is, it is so certain that there's no conflict with Jesus' past tenses here. <laughs> you, ever, you ever get that in, in grammar school and school, right, when you would kind of mess up tenses a little bit? God doesn't mess them up because it's so certain. And let that be a comfort to you folks that it is finished. Jesus, is, Jesus accomplished the work the Father sent him to do. There's nothing more that needs to get done. There's nothing more that needs to get done for the forgiveness of sins. Let me ask you a question this morning sincerely. Will you rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? The finished work of Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. Will you rest in his accomplished work? Many in this room say amen to that. They realize that there's nothing more that they could do or can do for the forgiveness of sins. But you know what the hardest thing is when accepting that Christ has finished the work for your forgiveness, I think? Maybe you could disagree with me, but I think the answer is, in one sense, there is nothing more for you to do, or there's nothing more that you can do. You know what that means? That means when Jesus saved you from your sin, you can't just kind of have a life over here that's kind of outside of that, that you can kind of, you can kind of massage on your own, that you can kind of have to claim it as your own. It also means that there's, there's things in your life that when you, says, when you say, Jesus, you can have all of me, I can't do any of it, Jesus gets, to, Jesus gets to have all of your life. And there's, there's nothing else that you can do. And sometimes people, they, they like to kind of say, well, you know what? Um, I want this area of my life. And so since I want this area of my life, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to say I trust in Jesus, but I'm not going to trust in him fully. I'm not going to submit to a relationship with him and I'm not going to understand the full reality of the resurrection and therefore 
I don't really quite trust in all of the redemption of Jesus Christ because I want a little bit to do on my own so that I can I can have it my way. I can do what I want. Oh, I can go to church and I can give my time there and, and, and hopefully that'll be enough. But I still want what I want. The scripture knows nothing of that. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ. Think about this. Right? I have found a friend in Jesus. The hymnist says, he is everything to me. Does that articulate your heart? Or is there something there? He's everything to me. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. He's the lily of the valley. In him alone I see all I need to cleanse and make me fully whole. In sorrow, he's my comfort. In trouble, he's my stay. He tells me every care on him to roll. He's the lily of the valley. He's the bright and morning star. He's the fairest of 10,000 to my soul. Is that your articulation? Well, you may not be that poetic. You may not be that picturey. Or is it, well, Jesus is kind of something I just add along so that I can still have it my way. And so now the fourth and final word, Christ's return. So we've looked at the resurrection. We've looked at uh, the redemption, the relationship, and now we see Christ's return to the Father in verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Jesus is going together to the Father. Christ's return to the Father reminds us where glory lives. I want you to think about that in closing. Christ's return to the Father reminds us where glory lives, and it's not here, folks. We need this reminder because we often confuse our salvation now with what salvation will look like when we see Jesus. And don't get me wrong, it is wonderful to trust in Jesus now, isn't it? There's no other hope. But we will have tear, we will have trial. We will have grief. Jesus doesn't pray at the end of his discourse, Father, deliver them from all hurt and pain and temptation and trial. What does he pray for? Father, your purpose be done in me so that I can glorify you. Now, Jesus will pray for his disciples, and we'll look at that. And Jesus will pray for us by extension. But it's important to note that Christ's return teaches us that the glory that we are going to have is something we will have. That's something that we have today. In fact, go back to verse four, uh, chapter 14 real quickly and verse 27. Jesus kind of alludes to this when he tells them, in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you do I give to you. 
Well, what kind of peace is this? Do not let your hearts be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And so they would answer it and say, well, then don't go away. That's kind of what they do. And Jesus responds back, and he says, verse 28, You heard that I said to you, I go away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. In other words, if you actually understood and loved me, you wouldn't be troubled that I go. You would rejoice, because I'm going to glory. And so a proper perspective of where glory lives gives us a proper purpose on how to live today. In trials, with each other, in the world. But Jesus ends by saying this, and in, conclu in conclusion he says, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Christ's return to the Father speaks here again to the what I'm calling the deity of Christ. And why is that important? While Jesus is our friend, he's our brother, he's our savior, he's our teacher, he's also our God, he's also our Lord, he's also our master, and he is our head. And Jesus has some hard things to say to his disciples. It is not just the acceptance of Jesus' free gift of salvation that is the measure of being a disciple beloved but it is the response to the things that Jesus says will cost you remember elsewhere he tells his disciples to take up their cross if you want to love me and be a disciple and follow me he is the one before the world began he has exclusive right in authority to speak into your life the way that he will speak into your life. Yet even he submits to the Father's will and makes the glory of God his purpose. Our rightful response is to do the same, to, to, to submit to his salvation, to praise him. So as we look at the first five verses of prayer that Jesus prays, we see that he is praying for himself, for the Father's glory, and that ought to help us to understand right away the power of the resurrection and to trust in the authority that Jesus has, to cling to the relationship that is offered to us in eternal life through the Son, to only hope in his redemption. And finally, to see the return of Jesus Christ and to submit to those things. And so as we bow our heads for prayer, I just want to ask you this morning, have you just trusted in Jesus for salvation, but not really looked to him as a matter of your, as ruling your life. Let me rephrase that. Have you submitted to who he is? Because Jesus is from the beginning. He is the one who gets to say what is true of your life. 
my friends, I ask you this morning to consider, have I just ran to Jesus for salvation, or do I cling myself to him and submit to his will and his way for my life? Father, I pray this morning that you would help each one of us to understand that as Jesus prays these things, he prays in light of the shadow, he prays in light of his disciples being troubled, he prays but he prays submitting to your will and to your purposes. And so someone who truly understands who Jesus is, someone who truly has a relationship with Jesus, is one who submits to all that Jesus is. One who can sing, praise him, praise him regardless of what's going on in our life. Lord, um, there, are, there are folks uh, oppressed underneath sin, and underneath trial, underneath hurt, and underneath loss. And these things are hard. And they, and they ought to be, because these are, these are hard things. But, oh, Father, help us to understand the relationship that we have with you. It's one that causes us to cling to the glory that is to come, not the life that we have now. And Jesus prays for us. That ought to comfort us. And in response, we ought to praise him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.